Are some children more likely than others to get sick with COVID-19? If so, why? Integrative pediatrician Dr. Chris Magrita has given this question a lot of thought, and his answer may be both surprise you and help you prevent severe illness in your children. Listen to integrated pediatrician Dr. Chris Magrita explain all this in this special edition of Portable Practical Pediatric. Welcome to Portable Practical Pediatrics, a podcast for parents and families, a place dedicated to children and their well-being. And now, direct from Studio 1E in Charlotte, North Carolina, here's your host, Dr. Paul Smolin. I am very excited to have a special guest today, the brilliant integrative pediatrician, Dr. Chris Magrita, who practices at Salisbury Pediatrics in Salisbury, North Carolina. In addition to the standard education all board-certified pediatricians get, Dr. Magrita added an integrated fellowship with the famous Dr. Andrew Weil to his database of knowledge. As you will quickly see after we talk, start talking, this added education added an additional layer of knowledge that Dr. Magrita uses extremely well. I strongly recommend that you subscribe to his weekly newsletter linked in the show notes. That's at SalisburyPediatrics.com, where he discusses a wide range of topics affecting the well-being of children. Reading his newsletter is one of the highlights of my week. Welcome, Dr. Magrita. Thank you so much, Paul, for letting me be a part of this experience and talking about such an important topic as coronavirus and children's health. I am so looking forward to the discussion. Great. So are we. Let's start by explaining to my listeners, Dr. Magrita, what integrative pediatrics is and how it differs from a traditional pediatrics. So I have to take a step back when I discuss this part of it. When I went through my traditional training, you go through the process of medical school residents and you think you've pretty much learned all there is to know about medicine and pediatrics. And then as time goes on, you realize very quickly that there's something missing. We're not really understanding the genesis of chronic disease. So integrative pediatrics fell in my lap. My wife happened to be a nutritionist and loved uh, Dr. Andrew Weil and his approach to medicine. And so she started to push me down the road of looking at what else is out there that we don't know. So integrative pediatrics basically encompasses everything that you and I trained in, which is called allopathic medicine, the Western version where we learn about pharmaceutical drugs, how they handle disease, pathophysiology. The shift becomes when you go into integrative medicine, you now spend a lot more time learning about herbal supplements. You learn a heavy dose of nutrition, the headwaters of disease. Where is it all starting and how do we try and mitigate that risk as it moves on? We learn about chiropractic, acupuncture, Eastern medicine. So generally, I look at this as it's just a bigger toolkit. We're not saying allopathic medicine isn't necessary because it clearly is. We're just saying there may be other options to put into this toolkit to have more hammers, more nails, more everything. And that's sort of how I like to discuss integrative pediatrics. Well, I think that's a really good way of looking at things. Um, you know, one of the reasons I went into pediatrics was it was acute illness when, you know, I'm older than you are. And we didn't discuss chronic illnesses, but at, over my career, it clearly pediatrics shifted from acute infectious diseases to more chronic disease 
and that's where your tools are coming in very, very handy. Dr. Magrita, you've written a lot about COVID-19 in the past six months, and I think it is safe to say that you are an expert on the subject. Tell us why you think there are, is such a wide variety in incidence and severity of COVID-19 in both children and adults. It's the same germ infecting everyone, but the outcomes range from no symptoms to life-threatening disease. How can this be? So that's an interesting question, and it takes a deep dive into the literature over the past six months sort of to figure it out. Initially, we didn't know what we were looking at. It was a very scary time back in March. We're looking at this novel virus that has the potential to do some serious damage. And then as the days are going on, we're starting to see this disparity. Who's getting sick? It's predominantly elderly people. It's predominantly people with these what they call comorbid diseases, diabetes, heart disease. But at that point, we still had no idea as to the why. Children, it turns out, don't have some of the specific enzymes and receptors in their body that the virus uses to hijack the system to gain access and therefore overwhelm the immune system. Whereas adults and people with these chronic diseases tend to have more of these enzymes and receptors that allow the virus to take advantage of us. And that's sort of the crux of the biggest difference between the two groups. Immunologically, children are stronger than adults, which is another piece of the pie. But I think overall, the biggest answer truly comes down to the metabolic nature of children. They have less of these receptor-based uh, um, antecedent allowances for the virus to get into us. So what I'm hearing you say is that whether somebody gets sick with SARS-CoV-2 or not seems to be more about that person, the host, than actually about the virulence of the germ. That's exactly right. The virus seems to be what it is. There are maybe a little minor mutations occurring, but we're really seeing this virus as it is. What it is doing is capitalizing on the ability of our bodies to be different in its ability then to grab onto us, replicate, and grow. So for example, if we look at how it gets to us, somebody's sick, they sneeze or put an aerosol droplet into the air. That aerosol droplet then comes in through our nose or our mouth and attaches to our cells. And it attaches specifically to this thing called the ACE2 receptor. Children have less of these than adults do. In the adult world, those with metabolic disease have more receptors than those who don't. Once it gets in the system, there are something called these proteases or enzymes that are involved in allowing the virus to attach to ourselves. Children have less of these enzymes. Adults have more. The adults that have disease like diabetes and heart disease have even more of these enzymes. So there's a differential in our physiology, how we look to the virus that's allowing the virus to take advantage of us. And that's really the crux of what I'm finding over the last six months of study. This virus is what it is. We have control over our outcome if we start to understand the pathophysiology of why it's doing stuff to us in particular. From what you just said, it sounds like you're saying that some children may look perfectly healthy, but are not actually healthy, setting them up for a bad encounter with SARS-CoV-2. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Paul. When you look at children, what their physical appearance, people often think of as the only reason to think a child's healthy or not. Skinny, they think of as more healthy than somebody who's overweight. And that is entirely not true. Our bodies are metabolic machines. And by that, I mean, we take in food and different um, nourishment um, pieces. We add it to our system and then we spit out our, our energy, our movement, our brain capacity function, all of these things that are involved in what we do. 
And if we are adequately feeding the system, we are healthy. Now, you may think the skinny kid who is otherwise on the face of it, it metabolically perfect, but if he's eating only junk food all day long, which I have seen many, many, many times, he's not getting, getting outside and exercising, he's not getting adequate vitamin D from sun exposure, we can go down the laundry list of lifestyle-based factors, metabolically, he is unhealthy. And we could look at the blood of this child and start to see antecedent signs of this dysfunction. There could be a child who's somewhat overweight that has perfect metabolics. And the way to get a window into this understanding is actually to look at family history, which is critical. Our genes set us up for how we handle nutrients, how we handle the environment epigenetically. And by that, I mean how those environmental triggers involve and work with our genes to give us our outcome, how we are, what, what you see of us. And, and in this process, we're trying to help parents understand that the choices that you make as a parent for your child, and then therefore your child hopefully follows through with, will then decide their outcome metabolically. And so I want parents to really take away from this discussion that appearances, although may be helpful if somebody has signs of disease or they're significantly overweight to the point that it's likely that they're metabolically broken, don't think that your child's appearance really is a sum total of the answer to how they are metabolically. We really are now getting into the ability to start looking a little deeper into this stuff. And for me, I think the crux of it is really understanding family history, looking at what's the child's behavior. What are they doing? Give me a baseline history of their uh, dietary intake. What are they doing on an exercise level? How much time are they spending in front of their screens? How much green space activity do they have? Are they outside running every day? Or, or are they in an environment where that's less likely? Or are they exposed to toxins? Do their parents smoke? Are they loaded with uh, a farm nearby where they're spraying Roundup or chemicals all day long? We look at all of these things in integrated pediatrics as a, as a collective environmental exposure or what they call the exposome that then therefore could allow the child to have a metabolically healthy phenotype or appearance or a metabolically dysfunctional. And that's basically for us what we're trying to get at for a COVID protection, for a flu protection, for any disease mitigation protection. There are some, as we talked last time, uh, Paul, you and I, we discussed what are the ways to look at this. There are some metabolic markers. We can look at signs of diabetes. We can look for signs of liver disease. But those are sort of later findings. The, the hope for me is that we can eventually get to the point where we're really looking at snapshots of all of the metabolic nutrients in the child's body. Are they devoid of uh, magnesium, vitamin D, zinc? Is their microbiome or their gut bacteria functional? And we know this now from just comparing them to populations. So from us in an integrated perspective model, pediatrics, we really want to start diving deeper over time as we're allowed to. But in the meantime, for parents, it's really about the history. What's going on? What's your family history? And what is your child doing? Do you think that poor metabolic health explains why African-American, Native American, and Hispanic children are more likely to have a difficult time with SARS-CoV-2? This is such an apropos question for our time, Paul. I think we are living in a very, very eye-opening decade slash year primarily. We are seeing dramatic differences based on race. And that is something that the studies are gonna start to bear out more and more and more is related primarily to social determinants of need. Essentially, metabolically, children who live in poverty, children who live in environments where they are less likely to have access to nourishing foods, nourishing environments, green spaces, avoidance of toxins, all of those things we talked about in the last section really 
are showing up now as associations with race. And that really comes down to the fundamental dysfunction in our society, and frankly, in many societies around the world, where minorities are not given the same access to the beneficial health healing properties of good food, good environments, and, and, and avoidance of toxins. And I think that's critical. And, and when the final data comes out, that is my guess. I will be very, very surprised if we find through all of this research that it is specifically a genetic predisposition in certain subgroups. I think there may be some pieces there, but that's not going to be the sum total of the data. I really think it's going to shed a very blinding light on the reality that, that these poor children are living in environments where they're just not getting access to the things they really need. And I fault the government for that primarily. I think we really need to be doing a better job of feeding our children. I just wrote an article last week or two weeks ago on school food. And you know, a lot of children eat 66% of their calories at school every day. And, and if you look at a school lunch, it is abominable that we think that is a good idea. $1.40 per meal, most of it is refined processed carbohydrates, poor quality fats, and, and, and high calorie. Those foods are all pro-inflammatory, cause disease. We all have the studies we can read and, and cite all day long. And these poor children go in there not knowing any better. They like the food in general because it tastes reasonably well, but metabolically, it's a train wreck. And, and the government has, is unconscionable that they are not spending more money on adequate quality food for children. And for me, that's one of the saddest things that's happening here. And, and the, Hispo the Hispanic, African-American, Native American minorities are more likely statistically to be on free and reduced lunch. So they're more likely to be getting less nourishing food and live in this nourishing environments. And to me, that's the crime of the coronavirus spotlight. It's we, we really need to do a better job. Yes, I totally agree with that. You know, and to me, I mean, as a allopathic pediatrician, you know, learning about all this, listening to you, listening to other people, reading a lot, has really been eye-opening. And, and this, to me, is an amazing exclamation point on what you guys have been preaching, uh, that really this is true. The inflammation and poor immune function really does happen as an extension of lifestyle. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't echo those sentiments anymore. It is... It is amazing and sad all at the same time. I, I was telling one of my friends recently, I absolutely love medicine right now. And I love it primarily because the science is amazing. The, the patient care is amazing if you can get past the business stupidity. But the kids deserve the best care right now. And we are at a time where the data is coming quickly. And if we could just get the message out there. I'm incensed at times that the modern media is spending zero time discussing the ways to prevent dying. It's all about how to prevent exposure. We all know the odds are most of us are going to, in some way, shape, or form, going to get exposed to coronavirus in the next 20 years, right? But where is the discussion on the antecedent triggers of death? You know, it's they talk about if you have diabetes, you're at higher risk, but how do you get diabetes? How do you get heart disease? How do these things happen? If we can go back to the headwaters, go back to where the disease starts, not where the river meets the ocean. Let's go back to the beginning of that river and see this actually started 20 years ago based on poor decisions of lifestyle. Let's really pound that message out there. And then we have a chance of, of turning the ship around in the right direction. Yeah. The lifestyle of convenience. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Dr. Margarita, would you please summarize your recommendations to my parent listeners of what they can do today to prevent their children from getting sick uh, with COVID-19? 
Okay. So first of all, I want to thank all the parents for listening because that's the first part. You have to be able to hear the message in order to make change. Second part is let's go back and sort of summarize in a nutshell what's happening. The virus exists. It's not the last one we're going to see. There's going to be more viruses down the road that are potentially going to put us at risk. So how do we allow our bodies to be the strongest they can be? And I'm going to touch on something really quickly. We need to have the immune system surveil, which means to look for viruses, look for pathogens and see them. Once it sees them, we want the immune system to be functional enough to be able to now grab that virus or bacteria and kill it. In order to do that, we really need to look at lifestyle and decisions that we do that help support the immune system and our physiology, our metabolic system to be the strongest it can be. So no matter what runs at us, we can beat it back and kill it. That's sort of in a nutshell what it is. How we go about doing that is I like to look at a stool with four legs. If, you, if the stool has four legs, it sits upright, it's perfect, and at the pop, top of the stool, the part you sit on is what I consider health. Each leg represents a part of lifestyle that's massively important in our physiology. One leg is the nutrition aspect. What are you putting inside your body? The second leg is the movement aspect. Are you physically moving? That's heavily tied to immune function. Third one is, are you getting exposed to lots of toxins? Are things in your environment that are setting your immune system in the wrong direction, setting it negatively? And the, and the fourth part of that, leg is looking at um, mental health, right? This is something that you and I've talked about ad nauseum when we have our discussions. Mental health is massively important in immune function. So let's take that stool now with those four pillars on. And if you take out one of those legs, let's say mental stress hits hard, but you're eating well, you're avoiding toxins and you're moving constantly, you're getting a good active lifestyle. The odds of you having an immune dysfunction are not that high. Now let's take out the second leg. Let's say you are mentally stressed, you live in a rough home, and you're also eating poor quality food all the time. Now you only have two legs. What stool stays up on two legs? None. Now you've perturbed the system. The odds are pretty high that your health is gonna be impaired. The unfortunate reality is, Paul, most of the kids that we see in clinic are, are two st stool legs down, sometimes even three. And, and how do we expect them to be healthy and survive? And, and thank God coronavirus isn't, attacking the kids the way it's attacking the adults. But in the reality of the sum total of this discussion, coronavirus is just one player in this game. We want to set these kids up for the success of every player coming down the road. So what does that really mean? We want them to eat healthy. Well, what does that mean? That's such a simple thing to say, eat healthy, right? Everybody knows that makes no sense, right? We have to give them concrete ideas, right? And for me, the simple answer is it should be a whole foods diet. It should be real food the way Mother Nature or God put it on this planet for us to eat. Vegetables, fruits, nuts, beans, seeds, meat, and fish. Refined carbohydrates, your flours, your breads, your pastas, your crackers, your chips, your cookies should be in moderation, small amounts. We don't want lots of sugared beverages. Those are killers. High fructose corn syrup is a nightmare. One of the byproducts of that is uric, uric acid. Uric acid is an absolute trigger for immune dysfunction, metabolic dysfunction, and probably is gonna end up being part of the, the coronavirus reality. We want you to drink tons of water. So that's sort of the food nutshell. Then we say movement. We want kids to move. We need them to be exercising constantly. If they're in an unsafe environment, maybe it's as simple as getting them on a stationary bike in the house. Maybe it's push-ups and sit-ups. Maybe it's jogging in place. Anything you can do to get us moving. Mental stress, how do we handle mental stress, right? So this is something that we as a country really need to come to terms with. What does that mean? Prayer, big, big, big advancement for human health is through prayer, meditation, journaling, you know, for kids listening to music, quiet time, and really fundamentally, time with your parents. 
you know, parents are the rock that these kids put their souls against. When they feel the stability of the rock, they can feel comfortable. They're at peace to to engage the environment, to be risk takers, that to grow to be the best they can be. But we need to be there for them. And I think that's the best way we can help to reduce that stress. And, and food also reduces stress. And oh, by the way, running actually reduces stress. And then the fourth pillar, Paul, we really have to make sure our environments are devoid of toxins. We, we don't want kids eating tons of food that's processed and garbage. I mean, everybody knows processed food's bad for us, right? So we really want to get those chemicals out of these kids. We want to avoid having chemicals in our houses, glade plug-ins, aerosolized garbage. The, the asthmatics are the canary in the coal mine. Anytime you watch an asthmatic walk into an environment that has heavy perfume, bed, bath, and beyond, they start coughing and wheezing. Why? Because it's a toxin in their lungs. We're doing the same thing. The difference is our bodies are better able to handle it because we don't have that disease, but it's not good for us. So I want everybody to understand that getting that environment clean is really important to immune function as well. So that four-legged stool, if we attack it from all those sides, we really have a good chance of our children having great outcomes from COVID-19, but actually from everything. And really, truly, as an integrative pediatrician, I don't see this as just a COVID-19 issue. I see this as a, as a life-live happy issue, right? I want my kids to know that no matter how long they live, they live healthy. I just don't want somebody living and then on medicine and, and, and have to be visiting the doctor frequently. My favorite patients actually are the ones that come in for their well check once a year, because that means I feel like they're doing their job right. And hopefully my education is part of that process. If not, that's great too. So that's sort of the, in a nutshell, the way I would look at it. Yeah. I wish I could be a patient come visit you. You, you psych me up, man. You really, you're good. I will add one thing. Um, you know, that movement I think is super, super important, but I, I would add movement outdoors is yeah. even more important than movement indoors because you, you get the green and you get the sunlight. And, you know, yeah. is there anything we've learned about COVID-19 is that having adequate vitamin D levels, I guess that plays into immune function. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, we have hard data on that one. Yeah, we have very good data on that one. And I, yeah, I didn't touch on that, but you hit the nail on the head. That outdoor behavior is massive. Yeah, and being in the woods, being outdoors, being around green, you know, it, it does something fantastic for us. Yeah, hits that mental stress number too. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that uh, illness with COVID-19 is is really a, a huge wake-up call for America, our lifestyle, our our lifestyle of convenience. And it's time to turn this ship around. Could you give us your recommendations, specifically how parents could begin changing the environment of their children to make them more resilient, to make their their function better? Yeah, I think for me, it, it, it all comes down to leading by example. As a parent, we have to model the behavior that we want them to live in order for them to be metabolically healthy. So... Parents really need to start doing all those things that I just talked about that really are part of that four-legged stool. We want to be walking constantly as a family. We want to be eating and nourishing our kids. So cooking at home more, spending more time around the table, discussing our lives together, getting outside in green spaces, getting that natural sun exposure and vitamin D, and and really just, just thinking about how does my immune system exist in the framework of our society and how can I help get us there? And I think really, truly, it comes down to just getting out there, eating healthy food, cooking at home, spending time together, talking as a family, avoiding chemicals, and just really, truly living it, living old school. Yeah, I agree. 
No, I'd put gardening in there too. I think gardening is a tremendous tool for parents if they have the energy to, and the space and the and the wherewithal. I mean, when you deal with dirt and you deal with vegetables and you, you know, go from. I mean, kids are very excited about gardening. Uh, you know, I did it with my kids, and they yeah. both have superb diets now as adults. And uh, my daughter's a phenomenal gardener. She can grow things in a teeny little space that I could never imagine. So yeah. um, I think they would they would agree, looking back on their childhoods, that that was an important part of their childhood. Running out yeah. to pick the peas off the off the vines, you know, eat them raw, et cetera, et cetera, you know. It was great. Yeah, and I, th I think the point you're making there is so profound, too. If you think about how many kids come back to their parents in their 20s and say, Mom and Dad, thank you for making those hard decisions when I didn't want it. As a parent, we have to just say, you know what? As a child, you're just going to have to do it the way you want to do it sometimes because we know better. And, and in this culture right now of convenience, we are trying to be too friendly to our kids. I always tell parents, your job is to love your child implicitly. But that does not always mean you have to give them their way and make them happy. Sometimes making them a little unhappy at times in the long run pays dividends. Like there are times where maybe kids wouldn't want to garden. But the benefit of that gardening over over time is just it, – it, it's unlike anything else. And I, I completely agree with you, Paul. That's yeah. the way we should be looking at it. Well, Dr. Magrita, you have presented us with some great insights to minimize the effects of what we are all experiencing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Sounds like – prevention of illness with SARS-CoV-2 comes down to living like grandma taught us, eating a diet of only whole foods, getting plenty of exercise, spending a lot of time outdoors, actively playing, surrounded by fresh air and sunshine, getting good quality sleep and avoiding toxins. Preventing serious illness from SARS-CoV-2 sounds a lot more pleasant than treating the diseases it causes. Like all pediatric disease, prevention beats treatment every time. Dr. Margarita, thank you so much for sharing your insights with my audience today. Let me remind my audience to consider signing up for your weekly newsletter, absolutely free and full of good information and advice. And I understand you have a, a book in the pipe right now, you know, that maybe next spring. Yeah, I'm hoping it'll be done. It's a book called, right now, the working title is Why, 2,000 Days for Mom and Baby. For the better part of the last two years, I've been doing some research on how to prepare mothers physiologically so that they can have the best outcome at birth and then subsequently afterwards for their child. So hopefully, uh, you know, I write every week, and that seems to be a semi-easy process. Writing a book has become very fascinating, a lot harder, but I'm hoping within the next year that book will be out give mom some really tangible data on what to do uh, in order to have the best possible outcome for childbearing. Great. Well, if it's half as good as your newsletter, it's going to be a blockbuster. I am absolutely certain of that. And I want to remind my listeners also that Dr. Margarita's wife, Nicole Margarita, has a fantastic book on nutrition called Nourish Your Tribe. It's on Amazon. It's a great read. Uh, you can read it on a surface level, or you can go make a deep, deep dive with this book. Any of the information you want on nutrition, it's there, including recipes and advice. So I recommend Nourish Your Tribe, Nicole Magrita. Well, this is Dr. Smolin. Until next time.
I would like to thank the following people for their assistance in the production of this podcast. Dr. David Jaffe, the voice of the introduction. Robert Beezer, the composer-arranger of the intro music. Anne Gesner, my wonderful content editor. Benjamin Smolin and Jerome Moof, the talented musicians who produced this delightful theme music. Sarah Smolin and Nathaniel Horlick for their digital wizardry. And Wendy Smolin Esquire and Seth, the Rocketman Barrister Jaffe, for their inspirational guidance. Thanks, guys. By listening to this podcast, you agree to all of the terms and conditions found at the docsmo.com website. This docsmo.com podcast is informational only. Dr. Smolin does not diagnose, treat, or offer specific medical advice for your child. For specific medical advice regarding your child, consult his or her health care provider.